Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Urbanize podcast. My name is Wally Brown, a principal planner over at Equity Urban and host of the Urbanize podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Anita Yap, urban planner, community advocate, and professional development specialist. Hello, Anita. Hello, Wally. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing okay for the world we're in at this point. So the sun is out and um, still alive. So it's okay. I can feel that. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm wondering, um, wow, you've done so much, Anita, in, <laughs> in the professional world. You've helped kind of shape Portland and Oregon. Um, in, in some ways, through your work with the state, the city, I'm wondering, could you give our audience a, a quick sample of um, the professional roles that you've had? Sure, sure. So I'll start out with, I was uh, born and raised in Portland. So I'm a first generation mainlander from Hawaii. My parents are from there. So um, an Oregonian for sure. So. I have an undergrad degree in forestry and a graduate degree in urban planning. Mm. So a little known secret, I was a wildland firefighter and um, had done work in Montana on some big project fires and Eastern Oregon as well. Um, so I, you know, growing up in Oregon, it's such a beautiful place <clears throat> and, you know, the natural environment. So that's what kind of drew me as a kid mm -hmm. and um, into studying um, forestry and, um, it was, it's really interesting ecology. So I think what I learned is from, a, you know, environmental ecology to kind of the system ecology of, of community. So my experience in forestry was um, challenging to say the least. It was racist and sexist and, you know, misogyny all around, you know, this is Oregon or, you know, I worked in all places, Idaho. So I then realized I needed to do something else because work-wise it, I knew I wasn't going to be able to advance. So mm -hmm. studied ur urban planning. I got my master's at U of O in the 3 p.m. department and spent probably the last 20, 25 years um, as a city planner around the state, mostly working for government organizations. So I worked in Central Oregon for the city of Bend. I worked down in Eugene for a regional uh, Lane Council of Governments, a regional planning agency, and then work with quite a few small cities as their kind of contract city planner. I spent a couple of years as a transit planner for Lane Transit District, worked on a BRT project through the NEPA process and financing. So that was really interesting. One of the more racist incidences or <laughs> experiences I had working for a transit agency internally. And then up here in Portland, I've done it's again, kind of a little soup to nuts. I was the community development director for Damascus, the mm. first new city incorporated in Oregon in over 20 years. Okay. So I got to be the director to help create a new comprehensive plan for the city and a zoning code and going through all the natural resource inventory, looking at infrastructure, finance and planning, um, natural, I think natural research, housing and transportation. So it was kind of like an opportunity as a planner to like, bring in for me all my experience to do this you know the the i guess the upside is like i got to like create the program and actually explore some really innovative approaches we looked at um 
ecosystem services and conservation credit trading on a watershed basis. We looked at um, sustainable forestry practices and um, looking at doing some of that with some sustainable economic focus, again, plans. And then infrastructure. So looking at a really cool opportunity to do integrated water resource planning for water, wastewater, and stormwater, drinking water. So, um, and then urban agriculture. There are a lot of um, food farms out there. So we looked at ways to kind of integrate urban agriculture. And I worked with the University of Oregon's uh, architecture studios, and we had several come out and work with one of our farmers to create um, an urban egg kind of integrated um, plan. And they got to present it to the city council and the community, the students did. It was kind of a really fun, uh, project, especially with this farmer that we had out there who's still out there, but sustainable farmer who's really well known nationally. So it's a perfect thing. Mm. So that was the upside. The downside again was kind of the, um, the area is on the east side of the urban growth boundary in Portland metro area. Yeah. And uh, pretty well known for being pretty, being conservative from a uh, political and other conservative types of thinking. So I experienced again a lot of racism and actually some kind of scary violence. You know, we had people bringing guns to them to our meetings. We had people following us home after night meetings, trying to run us off the road. Really? We had the bomb squad out one day because someone left a brown paper bag wrapped up in twine at our front door of the city hall. Bomb squad. I'd never seen the bomb squad before. They brought the robot out, you know. Oh, really? It was like, well, it was kind of exciting because I'd never seen the bomb squad, but it turned out to be um, kind of a warning. It was um, the Daily Journal of Commerce newspaper in a bundle. And on the front page was, a, uh, they'd interviewed some folks from Damascus who were against, of all things, of course, urban planning and the, the urban planning program and urbanization of the community. So um, we knew it was kind of a threat, but it was it was a little unnerving. And then after I, I it just became very, very, um, toxic to the and violent to the point where I ended up leaving because I was being stalked and threatened by folks in the community. So, and even after I left, I was um, stalked by a former city councilor and had to hire a lawyer and, you know, had to alert, you know, security at the new job that I had on the person that was doing it. And, um, you know, very possibly if it continued, I would have to file a stocking order and call the police. So yeah. I'm just a city planner, right? <laughs> it's like, who knew, who knew? But I had an experience when I was down in Eugene of, of a similar thing as well. There's so all this stuff that's been happening with, you know, the, the former president and, and kind of that insurrection at the Capitol, it's like, you know, it's been building. That was like 10 years ago that I worked there. And so it, it's been kind of building in communities. It's not something that just happened for folks maybe who haven't been paying attention. So with that, you know, I, I worked at the housing authority here in Portland. I was the deputy director, but experienced a lot of racist, um, well, their policies are, but also, you know, within their executive team being the only non-white person there mm -hmm. uh, and was forced out. Um, and then have I worked at the state for a while in environmental quality, water quality. So worked on infrastructure financing for wastewater stormwater projects. Worked at the, oh, I got to work at the Oregon Health Authority. Oh yeah, the OHA. 
Yeah, in the Office of Equity and Inclusion. So look, looking at it, and you know, me thinking is like, I don't really have a public health background, but actually once we dove into it, it's like the built environment is all about public health. So actually my experience as a city planner, urban planner, really was a perfect dovetail with the public health um, and, and equity, racial equity focus. So it was really great to kind of expand and integrate kind of the work that I was doing because, um, as you know, it's all related. Um, and so you can hear I've had quite a few jobs in the public sector. And mm -hmm. somebody asked me once, it's like, why have you had so many jobs? You know, I've worked at, you know, I've worked at the city for 20 years. What's, yeah. you know, it's kind of like, what's wrong with you, Anita? And, you know, <laughs> it was an interview question. And I'm like, well, it's not easy being me in this world. And, you know, of course, this is a white man who was an engineer. <laughs> <laughs> and kind of look, you know, I didn't get the job, but I had to be honest with them. It's like, it is, it's not easy. And, you know, so I do, you know, job coaching for folks and I, you know, I do advise it's a different world now for folks in the field, you know, entry level and uh, mid career um, with everything that's going on. And I've told folks if, if they're not talking about racial equity, especially if it's a anything dealing with in, you know the lot built environment there's a problem and if they are it could be a problem as well because usually a lot of these organizations either consulting firms or government agencies are run by white people in leadership that haven't really done the work it doesn't mean they have to but you know they're not quite sure how much of the power they're will willing to give up to really think about it or admit their own privilege um, within the system. So it, it's it's tough work and it's tough for folks um, in, you know, early to mid career, uh, especially folks of color to um, be navigated. But, you know, now it's out there, you know, for me, it was like, I just, you know, quit and <laughs> found another job because they were just a bunch of assholes. So, oh, sorry, it's okay, is it okay? Yeah, it's okay, we're not the radio. That's okay, <laughs> we're not the radio. You can bleep that out if you want. <laughs> anyway that's great thank you anita I, and i'll say like i've had some i definitely don't have your breadth of experience but i've had similar i've had to hop from job to job and they're like why did you i'm i'm getting those questions now and it's like i it's a different it's a different world it's a different economy and it's you know and then like once you find once i finally get in i end up doing stuff that people have wanted to do for 20 years and i just do it in like three weeks i'm like oh well it's been taking everybody so long and then people get mad at me because i actually did it and then but yeah <laughs> let's see okay is that when you like point you know and that happened to me too when i worked at one job it's kind of like you know when was a simple thing is like how much money are you giving out as as grants and sponsorship and i raised that at this one place that i worked and they said you know we've never talked about it until you it's like oh like really yeah i mean which was giving away millions yeah. But then, but then <laughs> what happens is I think it's great to the point where then people feel guilty that they hadn't done this before. And so then um, depending on how that goes, then it becomes a threat to them. And I don't know if you've seen this um, couple articles out. It's, it's about black women in particular in organizations. And it says it's called from office pet to office threat. Oh yeah, I heard about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's the system of kind of how black women in particular get brought in and you know, everybody loves them. And then they start raising issues kind of like I did. It's like, why, have we, why are we doing it this way? Or 
you know, this isn't an actual approach. And so being outspoken, then they end up getting marginalized and then forced out. So yeah. that's kind of part of like my long history of many jobs. <laughs> it's yeah, hard yeah. To, to be quiet when you see this, when you know that there's better ways to do it. Oh, yeah. yeah. I feel you. My mom was an auditor. She still audits. And so I was raised under that, like all budgets should be, the budget should work. The budget yeah. should be balanced. That's gotten me into trouble a couple of places. <laughs> <laughs> but, all right. You ready, Anita? I'm ready. So I'm wondering, when you were coming up, who inspired you? Like, who did you look forward to? And like nowadays, who inspires you as well? That's a good question. You know, when I was coming up in the work world, especially in planning, there wasn't really anybody that looked like me. You know, there were maybe a couple Asian men. I don't think there were any black people. Well, there was one. <laughs> um, and uh, she worked uh, at, of all places, Deschutes County when I was there. She set up the historic preservation system program, which was great. So I got to take it over and she has been done some great stuff in historic preservation um, up here in Portland. Um, so, but we never, we kind of crossed paths. We didn't really have an opportunity. So I'll say who inspired me actually was my mother. You know, she's kind of stuck with me on, you know, the experience that she had um, coming to Oregon, you know, after the world, after World War II and just all the, you know, Asian hate is nothing new, you know, she was, you know, Asians weren't allowed to own land. They weren't allowed to live in certain neighborhoods. Um, there's all kinds of stuff that happened and just all the, you know, everything that they had to put up with. So she was determined though, to make sure that we could be as successful as we could. So kind of gave me some coping skills or at least, you know, some of it is, of course, to the Asian cultures, like keep your head down, you know, don't make a big stink. But I, as I got older, as you can see, it, it didn't seem to work very well. I was persecuted and attacked for, you know, just existing. <laughs> it just so happens, you know, it's like, it's what, you know, it's what it is. So um, I've just had to fight back a bit. And so I've just become a more of an advocate and, um, calling it for what it is. And I think now that I'm doing consulting work um, and I think at the age I'm at, I'm, I'm able to call call things and I, I feel good about that and about the work I'm able to do. Yeah. So my mom. <laughs> yeah, thanks Anita. And let's see, was your mom, was she, was she from Hawaii? I remember you yeah. said you came yeah. from Yeah, both my parents were. Yeah. Yay, <laughs> Hawaii. Were they from Oahu? Yes, they were. So um, I have about four generations of my family from the Chinese side. So uh -huh. uh, some of my Chinese relatives came over to Hawaii in the 18, mid 1800s. Uh -huh. And they, they called them indentured servants, but they basically were enslaved from China to go work in the Hawaii, in the cane fields and the rice fields. Yeah. Um, and then I have some uh, Native American, I mean, Native Hawaiian, um, rel you know, kind of ancestry as well. So it's it's a complicated identity as well as, you know, Chinese are known as the colonizers, not even more than colonizers in, around the world, um, but also with that kind of experience um, from, from at least the, the ancestry side and then to Hawaii. 
and then being, you know, pretty much raised in Oregon without kind of that cultural context um, or support. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Shout out to Swin Ho, the architect here, <laughs> <laughs> making some buildings to help commemorate that. Oh my goodness, yeah. So everyone check out City Bass Story, the Garden of Surging Waters that our friend and colleague, Suen Ho Design. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah. That's great. So I'm wondering, um, we have a question from an audience member. Oh, and... people are listening right now? No. Oh, no, no, not right now. Not right okay. now. <laughs> We're not that advanced. <laughs> Good. <laughs> okay. So someone, so her name is uh, Christine Lee. She said she generally wants to know if making a difference to the BIPOC community can be accomplished in planning, given planning's oppressive history, because it seems difficult to see right now. Well, that's a good question. I would say definitely yes, though. I mean, we need folks um, all around. So if you are a planner, you know, this is what I did because I saw that, you know, when I was here in Portland. And so I started volunteering um, in different BIPOC organizations or at least organizations that I felt had the ability to support BIPOC communities. So I was on the Regional Arts and Council, Culture Council that gave out grants to artists, you know, um, artists and residents, BIPOC uh, artists as well. I joined Pano, volunteered to be on their board and actually helped them with a, they had a mini urban renewal district that our city um, urban renewal agency created and it's called the Jade District. It, it was like pennies compared to what they did everywhere else, but it was enough, it was to help create some foundation with some financing and staff. So I jumped in right at the very beginning and we did some community visioning work which was fun. We did went and we had a full day workshop with architects and landscape designers and held it in five different languages, which was pretty cool and came up with a community vision. And then from that, the community, the Jade District and Apana were able to use that to leverage grants. You know, we've got a plan, you know, planner here, we got a plan. And so this is going to help implement the plan. So one of the, the big wins was that there's a kind of an idea and, and um, momentum for a night market. And so um, we mobilized, applied for grants. And, you know, after that um, full day charrette and community vision, we actually got enough money and held the first Jade night market in the parking lot of the Fubon. And, you know, we didn't even know who's going to show up. We thought, well, we'll be happy if, you know, we get a couple hundred people. Well, <laughs> it was ridiculous. It was probably like the first night was, I think it was just two nights one summer and I think we had about 20,000 people over two nights so mm -hmm. it was like it was just chaos you know there wasn't enough parking and people were parking in the neighborhoods and there were car accidents but I mean and the vendors, the vendors <laughs> ran out of food and all the restaurants nearby ran out of food it was just like oh I guess there was just a pent up demand. It was great. And so, I mean, there's a ton of volunteer work, folks in the community, especially, you know, one of our, one of my heroes, Rosalind Hui, who runs the Portland Chinese Times, just, you know, worked and mobilized, you know, vendors. They all had to be, you know, vendors of color, you know, local and it was great. 
And then the next couple of years, we actually partnered with uh, Portland Community College's campus, which is right there. And the campus president was was really involved and really cool. And it was great. We had a couple of stages with performances. Um, you know, the, the Wushu group were the most popular. You know, Travis Dang, who's one of a, a great art architects, also is the coach. So, you know, all these fierce little girls with these swords and you know, doing these amazing, you know, uh, martial arts acrobats on, you know, what do they call those? Kind of like cartwheels and, you know, but mm -hmm. they, they were fierce. It was great. So, and, you know, all kinds of other dances from all around the world. So mm -hmm. it was fun and uh, a lot of work, but it really just showed you that there's a lot of vibrancy. There's a lot of opportunity for economic empowerment, um, and there's a lot of interest from other folks who know nothing about what we're about. Yeah, I think that sounds great. That's perfect. Thank you, Anita. It was fun. Yeah. So I have some, um, I have some weird, I have a weird question for you. Uh, well, what advice do you have for young people who will inherit our current systems? become the stewards and planners of tomorrow, especially BIPOC planners? Well, I would say let, let's get you uh, in charge so we can like break it down. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm just, you know, I would say old and tired, but having to operate within that and it's challenging and not really having the opportunity. You know, I know that I'm much more qualified and much more visionary um, and, and know how to work with change than a lot of folks that I've had to compete for jobs who actually got the job. Um, but, you know, they're a safe, safe person, you know, because they know how to work the system and that I think whoever hired them knew that they weren't going to disrupt the system. So I think it's really, you know, it's a kind of a grass tops and grassroots kind of thing is like getting folks, uh, all you young folks, if you're interested, run for office, you know, because those are the people are in the in charge and, you know, you're voted in by the people. So that's kind of the top piece. So then you're able to then appoint these directors who definitely it's a good old boys and girls group and the white folks. So that's one way. But also, I would say get involved, um, you know, professionally within your group, you know, as far as professional planners, I see that there's, you know, blacks and urban planning and all of that. So support each other and, and talk about that and create this network of um, support and also um, how to leverage and strategy for each, so you all get in, get in charge. And I think the last one is the um, external, you know, volunteering community. Because I felt that um, because of the work that I'd done in government, I knew how to navigate that. So I was able to then work with folks in the community um, even though, like I said, I'm I'm not necessarily com connected to the Chinese community other than I am Chinese, part Chinese, but to understand what it's like to be a volunteer, you know, to do this kind of work and um, how to advocate and kind of help other folks and organizations navigate the bureaucracy to get, you know, policy changes, um, connect people directly with elected officials. And then like, if we elect, you get elected to Mayor Wally, you know, we're gonna connect the community to you and together you all can create the change. That's how it happens. So the people who are, you know, in these agencies are pretty nervous. So, and they should be. I can see that. So inside, outside, grass tops, grass roots. 
because really you can't really do a lot of this work unless you do have community support. You know, a lot of folks get in these agencies thinking they can make some change and you can do some of that. But the strategy I always have is it's not about you. It's really about how you're um, kind of working to build capacity inside the agency or government agency you're doing. You know, we've always talking about, oh, there's no capacity out in the community. Actually, the community has a lot of power and wisdom. Um, it's just the government doesn't know how to do it or they just choose not to because if they actually heard what the community wanted, they <laughs> they uh, wouldn't have their job. So yeah. there's a lot of fear. Or they'd have less freedom. They'd have less leeway in doing their job. Right. Because <laughs> they know what, if they write down, they a lot of times I think they know what community wants, but they choose not to write it down. Yeah. Well, and I think part of the challenge too, and this is, you know, for folks coming out of college is that we're, we're being educated in the, you know, white supremacist system of, you know, un university is what urban planning is. And so occasionally I get to be a guest speaker at some of the urban planning um, program at at least Portland State and at U of O. And I always tell folks, it's like, you know, and you just wanna make sure that you're thinking about kind of what people think are, you know, the concept of safety in community and walkable, walkability in community. And um, and what I like to say is, you know, the, the, the going to Copenhagen um, may be a great model, but it's not for everybody. And actually knowing that maybe that the, the Dutch violence and colonization are what a lot of communities have fled from. So like putting that in as a model is when it's old school, but also it's, it's pretty um, tone deaf on people's lived experience that they have um, using that as a model yeah yeah i think um i think you're making a lot of sense and i think like the way that you know no no shade on dutch you know just like you're able to if you if you design your cities during an era of like colonization then your your manufacturing is like offshore so you can dedicate most of your city to residential and like low-end commercial because a lot of your heavy manufacturing comes from your colonies and whatnot mm -hmm. you know so i just think that, that's just important context i i still i like the way they do buses and their little i like i think their their dams are awesome every time yep. i see their dams i say damn that's a that's a nice dam yeah i don't think they invented it though i think there's cultures that have been doing this kind of stuff for centuries that they they've used and so i mean if you've been down to you know curitiba you know there's yeah. other right so it's not just kind of the white culture that's leading this is kind of my point for certain i love colombia bucaramanga mm -hmm. bogota medellin let's, let's i love korea korea was dope i'm wearing a korea shirt today i lived, I lived in korea for like a year and six months and i was in japan the way they do their emergency planning, it, it's I think it's very far ahead of what we do here in the U.S. I, I yeah, earthquakes are very. We're also we're on the same ring of fire as Korea yeah. and Japan on the West Coast. So I, I really think we should be doing more international like bringing together of like emergency response. But that's another. We'll we'll see. I, I'm I'm connected to emergency response tangentially here, so we'll see what happens. Well, and I'm thinking about that as far as, especially, you know, the, the word resiliency, but especially in kind of climate change, you know, being on the ring of fire, there's, I mean, here in particular in Portland, there is, you know, 
we're set to have the big one sometime soon based on all the predictions. And so what kind of preparedness are we, do we have? You know, I've heard about from an infrastructure system, you know, that one of the bridges they're working on. And I just heard of the, the ports talking about a, a runway that is, you know, seismically because planes are got to land. So with, you know, supplies and things like that. So, but thinking about our communities on how are we going to support each other, you know, and some of the things I've heard is like, you know, we could be without sewer and water for six to nine months. It's like, so what are we going to do? You know, power is going to be down and, you know, it's like, how are you prepared and how, you know, so, I mean, not to be, you know, the doomsayer, but there's been a lot of um, kind of emergency preparedness. And I think, especially working for um, our communities of col col color and other vulnerable communities, I think, there should be more consideration even in our um, kind of the planning world and how we even think and talk about our planning. Yes, I think you're exactly right. And I'll share with you a little bit about what I know. I, I worked on some emergency, I, I worked right. on some community resilience mm -hmm. and with some, from some of the folks at PBEM. So locally, Regina Ignabari and Devon, those are two people who are like really, really heading that work. I think uh, also Jeremy Von Curen, he's one of the managers over there at PVM. And they're, they're under the direction of Jana right now. And uh, basically from, from what I've seen from the, I, I did the incident command services training, the ICS. And it's from what I've seen of the plans, like they don't, uh, it seems like everything west, like the west side of town, town, northwest, southwest, the west side of the bridges, those are given second priority because of like their soils and like you have to get across a bridge to reach them which is that is consciously one of the reasons why i moved to east portland and it's also more like east portland is more geographically sound like it's it's more flat their soils are less like shaky um I, for those of you who are who are listening i i visibly shake when i said shaky but um <laughs> we, we, they did yeah. this shaky dance, yeah. <laughs> and there's, um, I was, I was heavily disappointed when, um, so recently, we had that, um, ERM task force, the unreinforced masonry buildings. They were just gonna put up a sign to say like, hey, these are unreinforced. This building is. I thought it was really. I think it's irresponsible to like that got. I think it's irresponsible to not have those. I think to me like from my planning slash public health kind of background. To me, that's like the same level of responsibility as having like a food safety moniker. Like, hey, we have an A plus score for food. Like it, it got killed politically because a lot of businesses are like, we'll lose business if like people see that we're unreinforced masonry building. But like there's so many, my thought against that is like that there's so many buildings that are unreinforced and people already generally don't read like i don't think because i see like terms and conditions like people don't read terms and conditions often but the idea is to have it there if somebody needs to make a decision based off that is the idea is we shouldn't have we shouldn't actively hide that information you right. know but i, I was know. surprised too and i think what i had read I, I wasn't necessarily involved but i think what i had read is a lot of the um pro the building owners at least from um the BIPOC community said it would, you know, affect them more on their sale. But, you know, again, I would imagine a uh, 
you know, if they sold it, they would have an appraiser come out and <laughs> that would, but I guess they didn't want it advertised, but you know, again, that's just what I read. And so that's the, what they said was part of the reason why they um, didn't pass that, but you know, I, you know, read the news. <laughs> I feel like they're scapegoating when they say that, because they, I used to dig into the data and they, they made a, a lot of the data that was like regularly open. They, they also like hid some of the data. I still know how to get to it because I, I, that's what I do. But like for them to take down some of the public data for that, like that, that has to be it has to be bigger than that for them. Yeah, I think to, so. Yeah, I think sometimes they do that in Portland. It's like, oh, this one BIPOC person doesn't like it, so we're gonna kill the whole program. And it's because then like, like, really? Is that also <laughs> is that why you took the information off your servers? Mm. But public records, you have to retain it for seven years, so it's it's somewhere. So. Okay. Speaking of data, Anita, what are yours? What are some of your go-to sources for data, or any book recommendations you have for us? Oh my goodness. Um, well, I think one of my go-to sources for da data is you. <laughs> oh, yay! <laughs> yay. Well, you know, I don't have to say. You know, I work kind of in the old-school planning, where you know we do a lot of plans, but we don't do a lot of data collection, you know, and I've worked in public health, which does all kinds of collection of data, but those two aren't connected at all. And I think part of the reason, you know, so the question about data is that um, planners plan, but they don't actually evaluate the um, effectiveness. You know, they may use data to help the plans, you know, there's tons of GIS, there's all this kind of stuff from census and to do all this plans, but then they're done. They don't actually track um, effectiveness and look at you know continuous improvement, kind of like public health. But you know, public health is talking directly about people, and there's other things related to you know requirements for federal funding. As far as from my standpoint, from working in, in local government and state government, at least in the planning, there there are regulations for you know planning. You know, people do housing needs analysis here in Oregon. They do economic opportunities analysis, which is, you know, in the land use planning goals, goal nine and 10. I sound like a walk, don't I? Anyway, <laughs> um, and those analysis have to be done in order to get uh, comp plan amendments on a, a large scale up, uh, approved by the state. So if they're doing a big comprehensive plan update, which they do maybe every 10 or 20 years, like Portland took 20 years to do it. Um, they have to do this data analysis on, you know, what's their available housing needs and um, what are the range. And they also have to look at economic opportunities from traded sector to, you know, entrepreneurship. But so they do this analysis, they put it in with their plan. It doesn't necessarily mean they even need to implement it because no one's tracking. You know, I, I sound pretty cynical, but I am because it, 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 there's the accountability piece is, is challenging. So data is important. Um, and I think kind of the work that I'm doing now is I'm encouraging even the work in um, engagement and also with racial equity. What are, the, what are the outcomes and how are you measuring it? And is it not, not just quantitative data, but qualitative data as well? And I think it seems like a newer concept for you know, planning folks to be thinking about on kind of this met metrics benchmarking accountability because uh, I haven't really seen it a lot. I don't yeah. know, maybe you have Wally, but um. oh yeah, I love I always dig into that. 
I don't, I really don't think that there's a distinct, like, I think at the end of the day, I don't think that there's much of a distinction between qualitative and quantitative data. And I, I think like the deeper you go into data, like the more you see that, like people tend to weight qualitative data by how many times they hear the same thing, which turns it into quant a, a form of quantitative data. From, like if many people say like, oh, the sidewalk's broken and like five people say that, then like, okay, it's more important. And it's like, okay, well now there's a, there's a magnitude, there's a quantitative magnitude of that qualitative information. And I don't think people understand. I think we're starting to understand the connection to that. I, I really like, uh, you connected me with Lydia at the DEQ and she's talking about life cycle analysis. I would love if we did like life cycle analyses of plans. Like planners don't just like start at the beginning, go to the middle, then hand it off. Like if we just would stick around in the communities and then talk to them, that's what I would like. That's perfect because you know I was talking to a group of folks at um, Portland State, the Institute of Metropolitan Studies, and I asked them. I said, "Is their board?" I said, "What do you think is the biggest challenge that you know the Portland Metro region region is going to be looking at?" And I was really it, it has to do with this life, life cycle. Someone said, "You know, in the next forty years, all of our infrastructure is probably going to have to be rebuilt. You know, bridges, you know, um, sewer, water, streets." buildings and he said no one's thinking about that and uh, no one is there's not necessarily even not even thinking but how are we going to finance that I thought that was pretty profound um, to think about and so now you when I walk around town I'm like oh my gosh you know what's going to happen right yeah that makes a lot of sense and I'll just speak on that again I'm, I'm just, I get excited about infrastructure you said the I, I word and you know <laughs> Yes. So I worked at I worked at BES, then I worked at the Hillsborough Water Infrastructure, then Metro and all these things. And like there there are not there is a person named Nathan Leamy. I don't know if he listens to this podcast, but his position is built to be like or it was built at the time to be the liaison between BPOT and BES. And like the idea is that when they're ripping up a street to replace the sewer pipeline, you also repair the sidewalks, you also like repave the asphalt so from the little money that we do have we're making the most of it and maybe we can strategically meal piece everything together i don't know how i don't know how it's going but yeah I, i'm always talking to people about that infrastructure piece and people think i'm crazy but then then they see the data then they're like oh no you're right they're like okay but i'm only saying it because i learned from there's a guy named um his name is pete He's the public, he's a public works director down in Salem. And he was my professor for public works at Portland State. I was just lucky enough to get a director of public works to be my public works professor. And him and Eileen, she used to be the uh, city manager over at West Lynn. Like they would both tell me like the both like the theoretical and then like the dirty stuff. And then like how it all gets together and yeah, I think we are in for a rude awakening if we don't like clean up our act, you know, and that means like being more strategic about what we do and less discretionary. It's way too discretionary right now. It should very, it should be very formulaic the way that we do these things. But that's yeah. my opinion. And I don't think people value infrastructure, meaning kind of the typical ones, streets, sewer and water, because sewer and water is under the ground, but it's, and what I've learned when I was working, well, in different cities and also at the state where we did financing for communities, learning about just the 
fragility of our drinking water systems and our wastewater systems on how old they are, how long they have not been maintained and upgraded. And then the impact on our environment as far as, you know, all the wastewater systems discharge to a, a stream or a river. And because of the, um, you know, drinking water standards haven't been changed. There's a lot of stuff in the in our drinking water that is not mandated to be um, treated. So there's actually a huge crisis. And you've probably heard, you know, about what happened with Flint. Um, and, and there's a lot of that actually going on all around the country, the really fragile drinking water system, which is much more fragmented than the wastewater systems. Mm. And then here in Oregon, um, the federal government, we're, we're giving out grants for communities to build wastewater systems. So there's a bunch of small towns in Oregon who are tiny that have a wastewater system that's like kind of just a very primary one that they when they just are barely running it mm. and they haven't upgraded it. And um, there's new um, stream discharge, um, you know, regulations because of salmon and, you know, temperature. And so talk about data. Um, if, you, if you look at kind of all the, the streams in Oregon, which is pretty well known for having pretty good drinking water and water quality, they're all in, we're, you're in for surprise. So I think part of it is, I wouldn't say I know too much, but I also care a lot about what are we going to do with this? especially some of these systems that are just barely functioning, that they barely have enough people to pay for it. But they got this because of um, federal grants 50 years ago. So, yeah. And then you asked about books. There's so many good books out there. You know, there's a lot, I know folks um, in planning have been reading, I guess what I just picked up um, is Cast, which is really good. Isabel Wickerson. Yes, really good. Um, another one I'm reading is uh, Design Justice, which is kind of, a new thing for architects, which is kind of funny. I mean, it's great, but it's, you know, there's stuff about design as protest. And so I think it's really great to see the architecture community kind of waking up because it's a pretty white led um, kind of industry. So um, pushing that, which has been kind of fun. I also like to um, think about working at a person to person level as well as kind of the impact of racism that it has on folks. And so that's kind of my side gig, so to speak, working with um, early and mid-career professionals of color is what is the impact that racism has on us, you know, from a personal standpoint and how are we really um, making sure that we're able to process it. And I've got a really great um, mentor and teacher right now who's I'm taking, it's called um, Interpersonal Neurobiology for Practitioners of Color. And learning about how, and the way she describes it as racism is, is a public health, but it's, it's like a chronic disease. It's something that folks um, experience, I'd say for myself, you know, it's 24 seven and it's never gonna go away. So, and there's a lot of it that's really subtle. We only are able to consciously, you know, be aware of it, but we also have all this other subconscious within our vagus nerve on how, you know, it's kind of like, was that race, you know, was that guy, did that person just say that? Am I just, it's like, that's kind of, yes, they did. And when, if you're at the point of thinking that it's because it's happened. And so, so many people have, for me have been taught to like question that, question our own intuition on how we're being treated or whatever. So I tell people to trust that and really bring that to the awareness, but also 
because once you look or start looking around, it's everywhere. So then how do we process that? So that's part of the, the work that I'm doing as well is working with folks on not only processing it and unpacking things, but helping lighten their load so that they can continue to do this work with the kind of support and also, um, you know, we call it self co-regulation or attunement with other folks to process that because otherwise it's going to make you sick and angry and it's definitely going to affect your person, your physical and mental health. Um, mm. as you can imagine. And so it's, it's really important. It's, I, for me, I feel it's kind of an evolving practice that I want to do with folks. Mm. You know, I just held, a, I think I shared with you Friday, I held an API um, healing space with some folks at a government department mm -hmm. here in Portland. And it was, it's hard. The Asian Pacific Islander experience in this country is really, really broad. You know, I tell people there's 107 languages uh, going on here in Oregon. So, um, so speaking of another book, you probably heard the body keeps score. Um, mm -hmm. So that's another good one. It's just again the public health component um, of this kind of work that it has. You know, you know, place matters, and you know, you determine public health by people's zip code. But it's because of all the other things related to it. So it's super integrated. So there's kind of the the professional built environment thing, but it's the people that are the important part. So. It's kind of, it's, it's great to see that there's becoming more awareness of the public health aspect of the built environment and the work we do. I'm not sure, I think, I'm not sure how much is being taught in school. I mean, a lot more is being taught in school than when I was there, but I, I'm not sure how much that's really integrated. And I think that's really one of the most important things to be thinking about. Mm. I think that's great. I think for my esoteric, from my individual perspective, I know that I got a I got a fair bit of it because I, I intentionally sought it out in public health classes. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if you're not looking for it. I don't know how often it'll come. Yeah. Yes. And I'm not sure how much, I think there are some, but the integration piece is really important. So I've seen um, folks get, you know, public health and urban studies degrees, you know, Portland State has, and I know a couple of folks who've done that, which is just a really great opportunity to, to integrate that better. And also because public health is better with data. Mm. Some of that can be, and, and you, you, I talked with some folks from the, the fire department, and you, I think you worked there too on some of the data that they were collecting on a like house basis on calls and thinking about what are some of the more, you know, calls they're getting related to whatever calls and to help them, one, decide where they want to place a fire station or um, also how they want to um, uh, work with their services on who, who responds to these kinds of calls and um, what other sorts of um, education and other community support can they do. I mean, it was pretty, in, in pretty groundbreaking to hear this from a fire department talk about it. So I was kind of excited. And I know it's a couple of really progressive people there that are pushing that and using that data, which is pretty, it's great. I, Cause I hadn't heard about it like that before. I think they're really trying. I think the fire department's really trying and like they're trying to use data to inform their, their decisions. I, it's weird. I think the Portland police bureau is even moving in that direction slowly, but surely, but, um, is, is very interesting. Um, but I, I kind of think like the fire department's like leading the way and then the police is kind of following like, oh, is it safe for us? And like, 
yeah with with the fire there's a very interesting thing so i was um at this so we we had a project our our school as a part of our planning one of our first planning assignments was to kind of like be consultants for the fire department on how to use data to better plan and the, my piece was kind of like the equity piece and i would win it i looked at like the hiring demographic data and then like the call data and like the idea an idea that I had was like maybe um, maybe diversifying their hires so that the people who are the people who are responding to calls kind of look like the people who are getting the calls and who are like giving them out. I got a lot of pushback for that, <laughs> but um, I you know I think because a lot of these like idea I feel like the ideal firefighter like lives in the community and like kind of kind of because like the ones who lived in the community they would spend extra time they were like this anecdotally speaking the ones who lived in the community that i saw they were like they were about it like when they when they got off the clock or like during like during like the weekends they were more open to like talking with kids talking with like hey, volunteering at the schools because they lived there and like one of them told me straight up he's like yo i live in this neighborhood i want it to be safe so like when i'm outdoors like i want to do this and that like i feel like having like a points based system that gives like applicants extra points based on how close they live to the station would be really good but then that would take away discretion from like people who worked a lot of years to be a chief to like be like i want that guy i want this person i want that and also like having women like having more women and i had one guy say like it'd be weird if women worked here right like it feels like a, it feels like a guy's club and stuff today even i mean like yeah. this year <laughs> Yeah, you know, but yeah, you were a female firefighter, you know, like it doesn't, there are so many tools that ample, like, even if like, they're going with this assumption that like, women are like weak, or like women just like disrupt the male workplace. But like, you know, even if even if like, in that's not true. But like, even if women were weak, like, that's the point of having tools. That's the point. It's like to magnify force, right. And like, you know, they're not, you know, and like, also, you have okay, like you could have 25 year old women and then like 55 year old men, right? Like, okay, at a certain point, like there's gonna be like, I don't know, it, it becomes like this open question that's like, okay, well, if that's, if that's your argument, then why are you in charge here? If there's other people who by that same criteria would be more fit to like bust down doors and do, you know, it's just, it's this weird thing. So I don't know, I, I said my piece, I wrote it down, uh, presented it, gave it to the equity manager yeah you know the one thing i would be concerned about though too just because understanding about racial profiling is as the police get involved and the trust the community has and even with the fire department you know are, are they are they racially profiling on it in a negative way with this data maybe you can talk more about your thoughts about that my thoughts about that would be basically like i think it's a i'll quote someone who won't be named but it's, it's a lot of outcomes 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 I think a lot of people or a lot of people like genuinely trust the fire department and i think for good reason because like you call them when you're in a distressed state well you call them for similar reasons that you call the police but they're not like like to they're not physically harming people like a lot of the uh, and this is me not this is me speaking anecdotally like the worst discrimination you'd have like with the fire department would be them not hiring people across like different races and different genders right like with the police you have that plus like they would be the ones that are harming people or 
like arresting people and putting them away and like causing physical harm to individuals. And so I think that's why there's a more visceral reaction towards police. But it's almost, I think it's almost just as important as like, it, like it doesn't solve the issue. Like hiring people of color doesn't solve the issue of having force, having the fact that they have the right to exercise force. You know, it helps, it helps address culture. It helps establish empathy, but it doesn't like you. You have to be like, okay, what 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 outcome are we trying to avoid? Like, are we trying to avoid violence? Yeah. Are we trying to avoid you know? And I don't know. I, I think like there's a way to. I do think that there are ways to do that. And I think the way to address it is like outcome by outcome and then be very specific and strategic. Like, okay, this is happening at a disproportionate rate. What is, and you have to define like, what is authoritative data? Cause like everybody's going to be like, oh, well, the data is misunderstood or this, 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 that. You have to establish like some common understanding. Like, okay, this is the data that we're going to go with on both sides on people who are trying to change and people who want things to stay the same. And then like establish a base set of data what are the outcomes? You have to agree on what reality is and then move to change that reality. And then you incrementally implement programs to be like, hey, this, that. And I, I think that they're trying to do that. Like, I know that they just got, um, whatchamacallit, there's a, there's a, uh, from California, there's an auditor that's auditing our police department right now. I think what makes it harder for the, I'm, I'm going to be devil's advocate. I'm going to play defense for the Portland Police Bureau right now. I think our city government system makes it very hard to have systemic change any in any single bureau because like right now they report to Ted Wheeler, right? If Ted decides he wants to be governor, right? And there's a new mayor, they're reporting to this new person who's going to upend all the programs. But when it comes with like longitudinal data sets, as, as you know, like you have to keep, there are certain things you have to keep in place. You have to not change stuff. You have to isolate variables. In order to isolate variables, you have to have some consistency over time. And then when a new administration comes in, because we don't have a city manager, they're going to interpret the data in new ways. They're going to stop collecting some. They're going to be like, oh, that data is irrelevant. But because because you just knocked out those three variables, we, it's now impossible to do a 20-year like longitudinal data study because you interrupted a 20-year process at the 10-year mark. And so I, I really think that we should have a city manager and like have some consistency. Cause like right now, like the only thing that's consistent at the police bureau is the union. I think, I think that's the most consistent part. And then like the, the city commissioners, whoever gets it, like they're going to just do it for like political, they're going to do what they want because the police are so vocal. Like people are going to be like, Hey, look at how I'm shafting it to the police or Hey, look at how I support police. Nobody's going to be neutral towards that, towards that agency. And so I, I can understand why they're so volatile, but at the same time, like we, do, we need consistency. We need consistent outcomes. That's, that's what I would shoot for. I think everybody would not like me if I joined there, but I think, I think I'd get outcomes. I, what do you, what do you think, Anita? I'm sorry. About that. Well, no, this is great. This is great because, um, you know, we're talking about Portland, but you know, I've worked around Oregon in a, in a bunch of small cities who've had small city, you know, small cities meaning, you know, maybe less than 10,000 people um, to, you know, a thousand people, but they all have police departments, a lot of them had. And from my experience in the last 20 years working around Oregon and cities, the police departments in many, if maybe not all, have taken down some of the cities kind of um, 
kind of progressive work just because of the culture of police, you know? So I'm just gonna say the cops are, are tough. And, you know, one experience I had where it became a planning issue with the cops. <laughs> it's yeah. like, how could it be? They wanted me to annex them, you know, up and down the freeway, like 10 miles. And it's like, no, this is Oregon, you know, the planning program with urban growth and you won't allow it. And I got in a really big conflict with the city manager who was also the, the police chief. So that's okay. Now that's, that's, that's a conflict of interest. Just blatantly. Well, in a small town, no, it isn't. So, um, (laughs) okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, people who know me know what that city is. And it was just, um, I, again, that's one of the reasons why I left because it turned out because I said, it's not going to work, but we can do a little bit of it. And, um, he wasn't happy with that. So he kind of turned all the other cops against me and, you know, just, they all carried guns and they were all pretty, you know, hyped up about this. And I just had heard them talking about it. And so I really did not feel safe. So I actually had to leave and it was, it was just stressing, you know, I'm like, I'm just a little city planner. Why don't, why are the cops threatening me? Or, you know, just like in Damascus, why, why are they leaving the, why do we have the bomb squad out here? But, you know, planning is political. Data is great um, for folks who want to use it, um, but they can also, um, ignore it because politics is what it's about. So I think the challenge is uh, how do you how do you advocate? And I think that's the, the discussion on the the you know inside out and you know kind of strategy for folks to take is community to hold you know officials and also staff accountable. And so I mm. think having the data understandable and um, kind of relatable to folks who don't use data, elected officials, not only, but also folks in community to, to use that to advocate for change is really, really important. So those mm-hmm. of you who are like data nerds, we love you and the, the GIS. So help us do that because, you know, I, I can help navigate it with folks, but it's really needs to be accessible, I guess, is what's kind of coming from this conversation, it seems to me. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I'll say one last thing on this, I think like the funny part about data is like we're always producing it like it's just like data is just evidence of what we've done in life you know like we could we could say we could say we could infer that we had a zoom conversation by looking at our browser histories or you know and then we look at the content of this information by like listening to the audio session right and so like there's we're always producing it at all times and i feel like you can ne- we can never ignore data like even if we're even if we believe that we're ignoring data the fact that we're ignoring data is actually pre- that it, that's data in itself like we can track like okay decisions being made decisions that were set and we can like over time we can see if those overlap or not and so i feel like like now like people who are ignorant towards the data, like those are the people who I think will be irrelevant in like the next five years. I think like, I, I already, I don't talk to those people. Like if you don't listen to data, I can't, I can't have a conversation because we are not going to view reality similarly. Like your view of reality, I can't influence your reality. Cause like, if you have your view of reality and you, you don't take in new data, then nothing I say would influence. So I'm like, all right, I'm just not going to talk to those people. I'll still deal with those people. I'll still, I won't convert, I won't converse. I'll work with those people if I have to, but I won't, I won't talk with them in my regular life. 
until like as it comes back with like police and things like within the united states we have a very like i think i think it runs deeper than our police like i think it goes to like our gun culture where people have the right to point guns at other there's countries where police don't have guns like i was i was in korea i never felt threatened by police there because a lot of them don't have guns you know i felt threatened by one police officer and she had a gun and she was on a murder investigation (laughs) i wasn't a suspect but (laughs) that was the one time i felt threatened but it was when she had a gun right and so like there's there's levels to this is it the like i feel like in america like we've like police is not like if we hear the word police officer like we know they have a gun we know they have several we know they have several guns on their person and that they have the right to kill us with possibly with impunity right so like i feel like it's a loaded conversation when we talk about policing in america and that's just that's just what it is you know i don't know so i have one more kind of comment on data because i think I agree with you on data and how important it is, but also I think it needs to be augmented um, with community engagement. Oh yeah. People's lived experiences because you can't capture necessarily people's experience of, of safety or um, even racism or harassment or all the things we've been talking about, violence that can't be necessarily captured in data. I, you know, I, w- I just um, finished a project recently where we're like, I was hired to do a regional equity analysis for some transportation options work. And so we had one firm that did all this data analysis and it was great, you know, but I also said, you know, this is, this is yesterday's data, you know, people are not traveling like they did pre-COVID. Um, and also that their experiences is different, especially based on the political environment not only over since the former president, but just all these other things just in the last year. Mm. And so there's a huge change, not only in travel patterns, but perception of safety and how people are getting around. So we, even though you've got this data, we really need to be talking with folks about what their experiences are, how they're traveling. Even though these are anecdotal, this is data, right? And um, it's, it's gonna help build better you know, policy and resource allocation going forward. And so part of the work I, I like to do is kind of continue to advocate to augment data with um, people's lived experience um, to better, to have better public policy, better public investments, especially with government agencies. And even just a better um, process. You know, I think the, the person I work with had never been to a focus group and this person worked for a government agency. Mm-hmm. So, it's like okay, this is this is where you get the real information. So, mm. that makes a lot of sense, and that goes to our next that that bleeds that runs uh, beautifully into our next question. What's your favorite mode of transportation, Anita, and why? <laughs> it's my favorite <laughs> mode. Well. I would say along, you know, it's evolved over time. You know, I I was a big public transit transportation advocate, having worked for a transit agency, and you know, living my values as a you know planner and you know focused on um, you know public infrastructure. I don't feel safe using public transit anymore, just because of the murders on the Max train a few years ago. Um, mm-hmm. The amount of harassment I've received waiting at bus stops, you know, there's 
there's people, homeless people camped out in some of the, the bus stop shelters. So I get regularly harassed and I don't really even feel safe even waiting for the bus to come, unfortunately, mm -hmm. even though I'm a huge advocate. I'm, and so that, um, you know, I'm going through the things I don't do. <laughs> um, I, I love cycling. I used to cycle commute as well, but I, I don't do that anymore. Um, but partly because I'm working from home like everybody else. And then even walking, you know, I, I was a, a huge, you know, active transportation advocate, you know, safe routes to school, walking, I, you know, walked my kids to school and everything. But again, just over the last year with Asian hate crimes, it's, there's just no way I can disguise myself as much as I try. <laughs> I still look like an Asian woman walking down the street and receive, and then I've received just, you know, I haven't actually physical violence, but I've heard, you know, people yell at me and stuff like that. So that doesn't even feel safe. So um, favorite, I, I'm not sure right at the moment, just because of the state of the world. So that's okay. That's an acceptable answer too. <laughs> I'm wondering, uh, so that that's perfect for our next question. How do you think COVID has changed like your local landscape? Mm. Yeah, it's really changed it from, I guess, internally how I feel about the world and also externally on, you know, what is considered safe and what is considered back to normal. So COVID, people talk about that and it's like, oh, I can't wait till I'm vaccinated. I'm going to travel and visit and go for whatever. And it's like, well, you know, COVID doesn't erase all the kind of hazards and, and danger, I think folks of color have experienced, and I think it's actually amplified it. So um, yeah, I guess that's kind of my, my feeling related to it's changed the world, both how I perceive what's considered safe and not even safe, because I don't even really worry about being safe. It's just places that I thought maybe I wanted to go and do that I probably don't think I want to go and do. I, you know, who wants, do people really want to get on an airplane with a bunch of folks sitting next to somebody you don't know who may have COVID, who maybe, you know, look at you because now everybody hates Asians, it's going to like <laughs> start talking smack after, you know, it's just not worth the, you know, I'm, I'm you know, I guess I'm, I'm at a, a certain age that it's really not worth the effort. So I'm not necessarily afraid. It's just like, it's not worth my time and energy to um, know that I'm going to experience that when I'm out. So I'm going to have to experiment on what the new, it's not new normal, what's the, what's the world's gonna be like for people like me um, as, because we're all gonna emerge out into public at some point, but what is that gonna look like? And it's gonna be a very different experience for, I would say Asian, Asian Pacific Islander folks um, in particular now, but I also think, you know, for other folks too, um, you know, I have some friends that are um, elders, you know, in their seventies and eighties and they're not, you know, they're pretty active. They go to the theater and think they said, I'm not sure I really want to do that anymore. And I'm not exactly sure what I want to do. So I think relationships are going to change, you know, and mine have as well, as far as people that maybe I might've put up with <laughs> in, in larger situations. I just realized now that I don't need to. And so I, I wouldn't say my friend circle has shrunk, but it's become more intentional and more supportive, which has been really wonderful as part of that um, as well. Yeah. Thank you, Anita. And then we have, um, let's see, we have two last questions for you. Okay. If you had the ability to change one system today, 
what would you change? Just one. Just one. <laughs> All right, I got it. I got it. It's um, <laughs> it's our in, in our system of racism. That's one system, right? So that would mean everything. If yeah. we were able to do that, you know, as far as what would that look like, I think we'd have to like figure that out. But it would not look like what it is. So when we talk about the systems, our our economy, our government systems, our judicial systems, our education systems. Um, public health systems, they're all rooted as you know, in kind of um, institutional racism. I mean, what I do when I sometimes talk is I will show a picture of all the people in the room that's signing the Declaration of Independence. You know, our country was created by all these white guys, you know, those are the ones in the room. And back then they were, you know, it may have been people, it's, it's hard, people come to this country and are part of the country because of the democracy, but it was set up to benefit white men basically in businesses they're in. They weren't, women weren't in the room and considered, they were considered property. Enslaved people were also property. Native Americans were all just, you know, you know, murdered and with genocide. So that I believe is this one system, if I had a, a way to change it would be, which affects everything else. But what would that look like? And how do we start? I think, you know, I think folks are doing it and we've talked about it, you know, it's the inside out kind of, approach is kind of the grass tops and the roots. And I, I'm seeing it happen. I'm seeing a lot of folks um, get elected to office that I have not seen. You know, the first Muslim American man in the state Senate in Oregon, first Muslim American woman that is a county commissioner in Washington County. And I, we know all these people and it's just awesome to see, but they're the, the first. So it's gonna take a while. And there's gonna be probably a lot of, um, as you know, with change, there's a big, time of just a lot of unrest and uh, so a lot of things that have been maybe good projects run by maybe great white allies may get halted and or maybe change significantly so I think there's going to be a, a kind of a period of a little of chaotic type of um, change and it's time is now anyway it's because of COVID and the economy so um, I'm hoping to see some change. And what I tell young people is, you know, this is the time for a revolution. And I'm right behind you because you're all the ones that are going to be in charge. So let's find ways to do that. So that's great. Viva la resistance. Okay. Yes. <laughs> <We have the, laughs> uh, so our last one is um, wow. What do you wish current leadership would do to move community forward? Mm. I would say if they're um, white people to, to step down and step aside and let young people of color that are really committed to helping build a better future be in charge. How's that? Uh -huh. I've asked folks to do that, but they're not quite yet willing to step aside. And then you step aside is step away because really there's this, it's not just power sharing, but it's actually empowerment and um, there's still folks holding the line meaning of, of kind of the power dynamics of the, the white led leadership. Mm. Thank you, Anita. You bet. Those are all the questions that I had. So I'm so thankful to have finally been able to interview you. I'm excited. I know a lot of a few of our listeners will be excited. Thank you, Anita.
Yeah. Well, Wally, thanks for what you're doing. This, your podcasts are great and the work that you're doing um, for community and just, you know, pushing the envelope on change is really, really important. So I support you and um, encourage you to keep, keep working at that because you will be in charge someday, sooner than later, I hope. So thank you for all the great work you're doing. Thank you, Anita. And I'll, I'll share one thing with you. I did, I got appointed to be a commissioner for the Mount Hood Cable Regulatory Commission. So I'm, I'm excited for that. I'm definitely not just going to use it as a political stepping stone. I'm going to like dig into it. I want to do a good job on that. So what's your vision for that? Well, what sort of vision that you have that you'd like to see change? Because this seems like a little bit of an under, well, you know, I hear about that, but like, what do they do? And what, what are some ways to really advance, you know, equity in, in that kind of arena? So I'm still, so I'll say, I'll, I'll answer that question with the caveat that I'm still learning more about what they do. But basically they take, um, there's a, they, so the Comcast rents right away from the city. And then 5% of that right of way lease for cable is sent to this commission to be publicly allocated, essentially. Oh, franchise fees, right? Is that what those are? Yes, indeed, those franchise fees. And so right now those franchise fees are limited to solely cable. Um, hopefully, I'm hoping we could expand that to internet because a lot of people are switching from cable to internet. And then we could do some really cool projects. So that would that would up the budget for the MHCRC. And then hopefully we could get some municipal broadband options, maybe. Um, an example of what MHCRC has done in the past are like grants to local schools. So imagine like charging. So they charged Comcast from the money from Comcast. They they purchased um, desktops, laptops, and tablets for for different school districts around Portland. Portland Public, David Douglas, and, and things of that nature. And they also subsidize um, local cable. So it's kind of like having our own uh, local PBS station that's through Open Signal. Mm -hmm. and, and they also rent out. Um, so there's Open Signal and there's Metro East. And so like we can basically, through charging these companies, through charging these companies like a small tax, we can basically subsidize the democratization of technology and access. We can we can close the digital divide between people, particularly for children, because they are the future, you know. But also for other people, like you know, just get people access. Uh, that's that's my hope. Do you think five percent is enough? I think five percent of internet would be enough because right now, right now we only have. Well, it depends because I think like 5% of internet would be, that'd be, I think that'd be revolutionary. That already would be a big lift. Right now we're only pulling from Comcast. So if you have 5% of like CenturyLink, Comcast, AT&T, and even the satellite providers like Dish TV and DirecTV, like for some reason they're exempted. If you, if you could just get 5% of all of them, that would, that would already, that would like, that would at least quadruple the budget in my Yes, if there's no like legal loopholes, which of course there would be, but in theory, you know, in the theoretical sense where there are no legal loopholes, that would at least quadruple the budget. And with a quadrupled budget, you could, you could, I, I'm friends with some of the commissioners down in uh, Hillsborough where they rolled out Highlight, the local municipal internet option. 
you really you don't need a you don't need to pay for the whole internet thing outright but if you can get a stable budget for like 10 20 years then you can secure financing for a local internet option for the capital costs maybe connect portland fairview and gresham and i've, I've seen the i've seen like so um what's it called uh, CenturyLink. they offered fiber from what i hear they offered fiber by basically running fiber down their phone lines so they had they had phone lines connected and then they just ran fiber through it uh, mm -hmm. if we could do that if we could at least connect like public because I, I i do i could see a lawsuit easily coming if we use like the profits from private companies to subsidize like their competitor which i could then that'd be i i could see um if we at least did that for public buildings like schools to give like free, free fast Wi-Fi in schools, libraries, affordable housing projects, and affordable housing projects. Mm, yes, um, yeah. If we could at least do that, I think we'd be on a good way. Mm -hmm. And then, like, then you could offer an affordable local option to the proximate buildings and then grow out from there, and then create this fourth. Yeah. Go, Wally. Go. Go. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm hoping. That's the hope. We'll awesome. see if we can do it. Good luck. That sounds. Uh, thanks for sharing kind of your vision. I think that's important. Thank you. Well, we'll see you soon. We'll see All you right. soon, Anita. Thank you, Wally. Great Have talking with day. you. Thank you. Okay. Take care. <laughs>